Well, good evening, church. Uh, as many of you know, we have started a new series in the Baptist Catechism, and we're going to be continuing in that here tonight. Um, so if any of you have your white catechisms that you have on, out on the table, go ahead and turn to page five. If not, I'm sure it's going to be on the board. Um, but nevertheless, let's, uh, let's go ahead and read our question. This is question two. Ought everyone to believe there is a God? Answer. Everyone ought to believe there is a God, and it is their great sin and folly who do not. Now let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, uh, we come to you now, and we ask that you would bless this time. Um, I ask that you would aid us to see the truth that we find in the scriptures and in the catechism that is based upon it. Um, Father, I ask that you would edify your people that are here tonight, that you would encourage them, that you would work in this church for your glory. Um, give us understanding. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Now, in writing this sermon this week, it dawned upon me that this question is simple, but it also interested me because of how the question is asked and how it's answered. I would say that as Christians, the majority of the time that we engage with people about the existence of God, we end up taking a defensive position. This is not always the case, but as I reflected this week, and when you look at uh, outlets like social media, um, there's typically, you have an unbeliever who is asking questions that are quite often antagonistic, and they put the Christian on the defensive, where we are asked questions in a way that makes the unbeliever uh, appear to have the normal position, and that the Christian has a position that is uncommon. But in our question and answer, we see the exact opposite. And instead of taking a defensive position to argue for the existence of God, our Q&A makes us think offensively. It establishes the belief in God as the common and the correct position, and rightfully so. But as we unpack this and work this out, I want to highlight two things um, that's at the tail end of our answer that states um, two things of those who do not believe that there is a God, that it is their great sin, and that it is folly to not believe that there is a God. Now, as I've stated before, I need to ask the why question. As we read this answer and we see the two statements that are made of those who do not believe, it's good for us to think about and ask why it is their great sin and why it is folly. And that is what we will be considering tonight as we unpack this catechism question. So if you're a note taker or you would just like an outline to, to follow mentally, to have a roadmap, um, this is where we're going to be going. First, unbelief in God is folly because of general revelation, because of special revelation, and the fact that you must deny everything. And I'll get to that in a little bit and what that means. But secondly, unbelief is a great sin because you suppress the truth of God's existence and you exchange it for a lie. And this belief that there is no God leads to damnation. And lastly, we're going to look for a couple application points that we can get from this catechism question. I believe that they can encourage us, that it, that it will produce gratitude in our hearts, and it will give us compassion for those that are lost in their sin and in their folly. Now that we have uh, that out of the way and we know where we're going, we're going to go ahead and jump into the first reason for why it is folly to not believe that there is a God. Unbelief in God is folly. Because God has chosen to reveal himself through general revelation. General revelation is the truth about God that can be discerned 
by looking at the world around us and within ourselves. Man could look out and gaze upon the majesty of creation, right? The beauty of nature, the absolute intricacies of what necessitates life, and know that there is something greater than him. All of us at some point in life have been taken back by the beauty that surrounds us. Maybe it was a day when you were hiking in the Smoky Mountains or in the Sedona Desert. Maybe it was when you went with your family on a vacation to a beach and you stayed late so you could see the sunset and you could see the sky be painted in orange and purple. Maybe it was while you were fishing at Shawnee State Park while the leaves were changing color and you saw blankets of green and yellow and red and orange that covered the hills. And there was a point that you looked in awe and in wonder at how these things got here, how they came to be. Maybe there's been times that we've observed animals while we're out uh, hiking, right? And we become fascinated with them. We watch them. How they migrate, how they eat, how they communicate, the colors in their fur, the colors of their scales, how they protect territories, and so on. And maybe you're just not an outdoors person and you don't really relate to any of this. Well, that's okay. Because consider how we actually place animals in zoos to be observed by people because we find them to be so beautiful and so fascinating. Where we go to see animals of all shapes and kinds and colors and we read plaques that give us information about them because it satisfies our interest and it satisfies the fact that we want to see something that is beautiful. This is general revelation that points us to the existence of God. That awe and that wonder while hiking, right? The fascination we have with the beauty of the countless amounts of animals and that we see in nature. Pondering of just how all these things came to be, how they operate so efficiently, and how complex life is. This is God revealing himself through general revelation that makes man know that all of these things could not have come to be as a cosmic accident, and that there must be a God. General revelation reveals the eternal power and the divine nature to man as they gaze upon creation. And as we consider why it is folly to not believe that there is a God, general revelation, God revealing himself through his creation, explains just how foolish it is to believe that there is no God and that all men are left without excuse. Now, maybe you find that argument to be a hard sell. Maybe it doesn't sound all that convincing to you. Well, let me show you where the Apostle Paul attests to the truth of this argument in Romans 1. Now, if you have your Bibles and you would like to turn there, we're going to be in Romans 1. We're going to read through verses 18 through 25. It's not a gigantic portion, but it is, it is not small. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The Apostle Paul explains to us that what can be known about God is plain to man because God has shown himself through his creation, that God's eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And because of what can be known about God has been revealed to all men, this is what leaves them with no excuse to believe that there is no God. And as I was reading what Paul said here, it made me think, is this not seen in all the pagan religions and the mythologies that existed before us? Right? You can think of Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, Norse mythology, and, and you can name the rest. Or to even go back further, the pagan religions that we read about and we see in the Old Testament. They're gods of the sun, of the wind, of water and fire, right? And it, it just continues. God's general revelation is so compelling that man has always known that there must be a God. And they fashion gods in their own image or the images of animals to explain what they saw in creation. Now, maybe some of you have thought, um, you know, but aren't they totally depraved? Can they really know any better? They're just trying to do their best, weren't they? Yes, we believe in the doctrine of total depravity, but what we don't believe in is utter depravity. Now, these doctrines normally come up in reference to soteriology, so it does sound odd here, but follow me. What I don't want us to do is to make a false intellectual leap that brings about questions and confusion. We affirm total depravity in the fact that the sin of Adam has corrupted every part of man and that we're sinful and hostile to God from our birth. But we do not believe that humanity is irretrievably sinful and that we cannot use logic or reason or even think things that can be true. Totally depraved sinners can live fairly moral lives. They can provide for and love their families, and they can think rationally and still be wicked in their heart. And the reason why I even say all of this is that though man is born totally depraved, the image of God and the mental faculties of logic are still enough intact for fallen man to receive and understand some knowledge about God that is revealed in creation. So much so that it is enough to condemn them. And is God not a fair and a just judge? And instead, they exchange the truth of God that has been revealed in creation, and they worship the creation over the creator. But not only this, Paul, just a chapter later, explains that God has written his moral law on the hearts of men, and that their consciences bear witness to it. In Romans 2.15, Paul says this, they show that their work of the Sorry, let me, let me restart this. <laughs> they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Those consciences may vary depending upon how hard the sinner will work to suppress the truth of God, but make no mistake, man can know that there is a God because their conscience bears witness to it. When someone does something that they know is wrong, but they've never been told it was, God's moral law is shown in their conscience. So as we ask, why is it folly to believe that a God does not exist? It's folly because God has revealed himself to man through general revelation, so much so that man is left with no excuse to believe that a God does not exist. But to our second point, 
Unbelief in God is folly because God has chosen to reveal himself through special revelation. Now, special revelation is the truth of God revealing himself through miraculous means. This is God revealing himself to man through appearances, through dreams, through visions, the writing of scripture, and the person of Jesus Christ in history. And I can't list all of them, but these are a few references that we can think about to help us understand special revelation. God revealed himself by appearing to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, to Moses in the burning bush at Mount Horeb in Exodus 3. He descended in the cloud on Mount Sinai with Moses as he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And Jesus Christ appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus. God revealed himself through dreams to King Solomon in 1 Kings 3 and to Joseph about Mary in Matthew 1. God has revealed himself through visions to Abraham in Genesis 15 and to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 8 and to Daniel to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams in Daniel 2. And of primary importance for us today, God has revealed himself to us through the writing of Scripture. God chose to reveal himself through the writing of Scripture, and he divinely inspired the authors of Scripture, guiding their words by his sovereign power to write exactly what he wanted with the use of their own styles and their own personalities. The Apostle Paul, he writes this, In 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All scripture is God-breathed, that it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And in his infinite wisdom, God chose to reveal himself to us in writing, in the writing of his word, so that we may have a deeper and greater understanding of who he is, of who we are of what he expects of us, of what he has done for us, and how we can obtain salvation and peace with him. So general revelation has already shown us that we have no excuse to believe that a God does not exist. We are worthy of condemnation. However, special revelation not only further reveals that God exists, but allows us to know the one and only God in a greater and in a deeper way than what can be known from general revelation. And if I were to take a guess, I would assume that God, in his eternal wisdom, determined to have the truth regarding him to be written, knowing that oral traditions would become distorted, that dreams and visions could be misinterpreted, and that he would sovereignly preserve his very own word throughout the generations. For he has said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And he said in Isaiah 40, uh, 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word is infallible. It is sufficient, and it is everlasting. Can you see the importance of sola scriptura in light of the special revelation of God's word? This is why we will not entertain arguments from those who say, God told me something. This is why we do not entertain self-proclaimed modern-day prophets or apostles, because if they truly held this office, they ought to be writing scripture. But they aren't, because the biblical canon has been closed. John warns us in Revelation 22, do not add to or take away from God's word, for they will be damned. 
This is why we, we reject the blasphemy of the papacy and his claim to speak infallibly on behalf of God and stand in the place of Christ, possessing his authority in the church. And this is also why we will reject many of the godless conclusions taught by modern scientific and political communities. Because God's word is the final authority on all matters of faith and practice. It is, a fit, it is sufficient. It is folly to believe that a God does not exist because God has revealed himself by the use of appearances and dreams and visions in the writings of scripture. And to make their folly even more apparent, God revealed himself in the ultimate form of special revelation by taking on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. God revealed himself to man in his condescension, where Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son of God, left his throne to be born of the Virgin Mary and to take on flesh and dwell with his own people. And I think Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, summarizes this point best for us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ was God incarnate, who condescended to his creation and personally taught and fed and lived with his own people. He fulfilled the, prof the prophecies. He fulfilled the law and he performed miracles. He cast out demons he offered himself upon a cross to fulfill the promise of redemption for the people of God. And Jesus Christ's existence in history is unequivocally verifiable. It's even attested to by Jewish and Roman historians like Josephus and Tacitus, who wrote of having eyewitness accounts of him, of seeing his followers, of hearing the stories of miraculous things that they could not understand. And the unbeliever may be able to suppress the truth of God and the truth of Jesus' deity. But you cannot deny the real historical existence of Jesus Christ and claim to still be an intellectual. Jesus Christ was the ultimate form of special revelation. And so as we ask, why is it folly to believe that a God does not exist? It is folly because God has revealed himself in general revelation. And it's so much so that it's left man with no excuse to believe that a God does not exist. And it's folly to believe that a God does not exist because God has revealed himself through special revelation, by appearing, by coming to us in dreams and in visions, the writings of scripture, and even the person of Jesus Christ. And if this is not convincing enough, let me point out the final nail in their coffin for why it is folly to not believe in a God. Unbelief in God is folly because you must deny everything in order to deny the existence of God. But what do I mean by that? Pay attention and follow along with me here, okay? We're going to use the logic of those who do not believe that there is a God against them. We're going into the mind of the atheistic materialists, and we're going to use their own arguments of how they explain how everything came to be. And we're doing this to display just how foolish their thinking is. Now follow me here. 
If all we are are byproducts of an accidental and spontaneous explosion of matter and energy, a cosmic accident that consists of stardust and chemical reactions that have underwent billions of years of genetic mutation and natural selection by the random force of chance, who exists in a meaningless universe that does not care. You're just bags of evolved stardust that arrived by chaos that shouldn't exist, but you just do. If that is the true answer of how everything came to be, then you cannot account for the reality of objective truth, truth that is unchanging, that establishes fact, that is always true. And if truth does not exist, then we, cannot, then we cannot give an account for the reality of meaning, for the reality of purpose, or logic, or reason, or morality. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no reason, no logic, no true standard of right and wrong, no understanding of morality. There can't be. You're an accident. And you have no more significance than the blade of grass that sits in your front yard. That's consistently the conclusion you, you come to in looking at their argument. And if the unbeliever is, is, is consistent, at best they can say that all of these things, right, meaning and purpose, logic and reason, truth and morality, that they're just human constructs, constructs of our imagination that have been collectively agreed upon in order for us to progress as a species. But that's a truth claim. They can't be right. But how can I know that? Well, truth does not objectively exist, remember? <laughs> you want me to believe that this argument for how everything came to be is true, but truth can't exist. Can you see the folly of unbelief in God? They will march in the streets about injustice and oppression, but why does that matter? Why does it matter? As Jeff Durbin would say, who cares if stardust oppresses stardust? Morality doesn't truly exist. You can't justify why injustice is wrong. Right and wrong are just human constructs, right? And this is where we learn to answer the fool to their folly. And what I want you to see is that they cannot actually make any meaningful truth claim about anything without refuting their own argument. But they do, and they will. And do you know why? Because God's moral law has been written on their hearts. And they are forced to be inconsistent and to steal from Christian theism in order to make sense of everything that exists. Because God has organized all things that exist in his creation to reflect his majesty and the reality of his being. Do you see the, just the mental gymnastics of foolishness you must go through in order to deny that there is a God? Because only the Christian can say that God, who is the author of truth himself, has created all things according to the purpose of his goodwill. That he is the only one who gives meaning and life. That he gave man the cognitive ability to exercise reason and to discover the laws of logic or to even think logically. And that he is the giver of an objective moral standard of good and bad in which we ought to live. Those who do not believe in God cannot truly make sense of anything in life, but they will steal from Christianity in an attempt to make truth claims that will put us and God on trial.
and it's foolish. It's complete foolishness. It is folly to not believe that there is a God because God has revealed himself through general revelation, so much so that it condemns us and leaves us with no excuse to believe that a God does not exist. It's folly because God has revealed himself through special revelation in appearances and in dreams and in visions and the writing of scripture in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is folly because you must deny everything to truly deny God. Which leads us to why the catechism calls this their great sin. So let's ask, let's ask why again. Why is it their great sin? It is a great sin because the unbeliever suppresses the truth of God and he exchanges it for a lie. Like a child in a pool that is shoving a beach ball under the water, trying to prevent it from coming to the surface. So the unbeliever suppresses the truth of God's existence deep into that water, working to never allow it to reach their conscience that bears witness to the truth. And as we already read from Paul in Romans 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's a great sin because in their suppression of the truth of God's existence, they replace God with themselves as God, or they worship the creation over the creator. Just consider for a second that we are mocked for believing in God by people who recite mantras to crystals on pedestals in their living room. That's not just to be funny, that's true. We are mocked for believing in God by people who believe that the stars in the sky dictate their personalities and their decisions. We are mocked for believing in God and his word by people who believe that their fleeting emotions of personal identity dictate the reality of their gender. We are mocked for believing in God by those who don't, even though they don't have a single leg to stand on to make a meaningful truth claim about anything. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And this great sin ends in damnation. God is a fair and a just judge. God is just in damning the wicked. And especially so when he has revealed himself in creation. When he's written his law on the hearts of men and their consciences bear witness to it. When he has revealed himself already, as we've said, appearances and dreams and visions and the writings of scripture. When he took on human flesh, lived with and taught and fed his own people. And when he has organized all things that exist in this universe to reflect the reality of him. Because you cannot make sense of it without him. It is folly to believe that a God does not exist and their sin ends in damnation unless they believe by faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and they repent. Can you see why the catechism is worded this way? I hope we can all see that we don't have to play defense. I've been asked with that snarky tone before, how do you still believe that there's a God? But how do we answer? We always go on the defensive. But the real question is for them. How do you not believe that there's a God? He's revealed himself. He's revealed himself in the inclinations of right and wrong. He's revealed himself in your conscience. 
You can look out upon creation and you know something is bigger than you. He's revealed himself by miraculous means that we cannot explain. And he's written down his own words in scripture. What more do you need? And here's a, here's a question I hear at work all the time, and it always makes me laugh. If God is real and wants us to believe in him, then why doesn't he come down and prove that he is real to us? And I laugh because he did, and we crucified him for it. He appeared to us in the flesh. So the real question is, how can you believe that there is no God? And an example that I have for this is a story that um, happened fairly recently uh, where I pointed out to someone that I work with just how ridiculous and inconsistent their worldview was. And I don't tell this to, to sound uh, like, I'm, like I'm bragging, but it's to actually encourage us and show us that we can have true confidence in the fact that we believe in the God of the Bible. I asked this young girl, a bright young girl that I work with, uh, a little, about a half a year ago or so, we were working in the paint tunnels. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I work at Kenworth, so we build gigantic semi-trucks. And the paint tunnels were in there, and you have lots of time to chat, lots of space. And we got to a conversation, and um, I asked her a question one day. I said, do you believe that truth exists? And she looked at me, and she answered, saying something along the lines of this. I believe that people can have their truth, and I can have my truth, uh, but that, you know, in all reality, truth doesn't actually exist. And this is actually a very common answer when you speak to uh, millennials, when you speak to Gen Z kids. So I asked her, isn't that a truth claim? And her eyes got real big. And you could see the light bulb that went off in her head. She understood, oh, wait a second. And when I looked to her, I said, you can't be right because you just destroyed your own argument. I believe that truth exists because it has to. So the question is, the question that follows this is, where does truth come from and who gets to define it? And this interaction actually led to about four months of evangelism at work where, you know, I continued to show her that without the existence of God, she cannot explain why anything matters. And I tried to point her best that I knew to Christ and to the scriptures. And she ended up buying a study Bible. She started searching those scriptures. And every day I walked into work, I had a flurry of questions. And it was actually kind of fun. Um, you guys may, her name is Paige, and you may also remember her. But she actually had attended our church when we were at the old building. She attended with her boyfriend. But just last week, her and I were catching up because she's been laid off for a few months. And she came to me and she told me, I am now a genuine Christian that she has truly repented, that she's found a local church, and that she's joined a small group. And my, tear, my eyes just filled with tears. I was so happy. Um, as we talked later, she told me that my question about truth haunted her for months, that she could not get rid of it. She constantly thought of it. She said that no one's ever pointed that out to her and that she could not find another answer. And I share this to say that we can have so much confidence in knowing that God exists. Everyone ought to believe that there is a God. Show the fool their folly. We can be offensive and we can be confident. Show those in sin their folly. But as we close, I want us to consider three things 
for application that I see in this catechism. First, I want, you to be, I want you to be encouraged in your faith. Yes, the foolish and the unbelieving of the world are gunning for you. They absolutely are. But take heart. Be confident in your faith, in the reality that God does exist. We don't have to have a blind faith. And when somebody tells me I have a blind faith, I reject it. We don't have a blind faith. We have an informed faith. We have a faith that is logically consistent, that has a firm foundation to make meaningful claims about purpose and logic and reason and truth and morality when they don't have a single leg to stand on. We believe in a God that has revealed himself to his creation in a multitude of ways. So be encouraged. Have confidence in that. Second, see the grace that God has shown to you and all of us in this church. We too were once unbelievers. I stand before you tonight as someone who used to claim atheism, who mocked Christians for believing in God. Meditate on your former life of that folly and how God has chosen to bestow grace to you and to save you. But third, this should stir compassion in our hearts for those that are still lost in this sin and in this folly. We should have a desire to evangelize the unbelieving world around us. Can we truly say that we love our neighbors who are lost in their sin if we do not warn them of where their sin will lead them? If I saw Steve driving by, I would frantically wave him down and scream that the bridge is out because I don't want him to drive off a cliff and die. And I know it's not easy to love and evangelize those who mock you for your faith. But again, I stand here now because a Christian chose to love and evangelize me more than I wanted to mock him. Make the effort and evangelize those around you. See the confidence you can have. And I'll leave you with this. It's a Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bless the people in this church and that what has been preached here tonight. Lord, give us confidence in our faith and encourage us to be steadfast and unwavering in the face of those who do not believe in you. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us in your son, Jesus, knowing that we too were once lost. Lord, give us a hunger to evangelize those that are still now lost in their sin and folly. Make us a church who is evangelistic, who understands the true, that understands that true love warns. We thank you for all that you've done in this church and in our lives. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.